And I love this story. Stephen is one of my favorites in the Bible, even though we only see him for these two chapters. But I hope that we're all encouraged and fired up to get out there and continue the work. So let's start now, chapter 6, verse 8. And we're going to read just down to verse 10 before uh, we stop and, and explain a few things. And Stephen full of grace and power, was doing great wonders and signs among the people. Then some of those who belonged to the synagogue of the freedmen, as it was called, and of the Cyrenians, and of the Alexandrians, and of those from Cilicia and Asia, rose up and disputed with Stephen. But they could not withstand the wisdom and the spirit with which he was speaking." We met Stephen back in verse 5. He was one of the seven that was selected to oversee the distribution to the widows in the church. And he was singled out in that list as a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit. That's a great, <laughs> that's a great thing to have written over your life, to be full of grace and the Holy Spirit. And now we see that he was filled with grace and power. He was appointed to handle the distribution of food. But we see at the end of this chapter, he is going far beyond that mandate. Because he was faithful in just a few things, the Lord expanded him to do more. And we do not see that Stephen had any kind of formal evangelist role. He was just living his life and proclaiming the gospel, and the Lord came behind him and empowered him and affirmed what he was doing. When we see these words, grace and power, very often in the New Testament, power, which is the word dunamis, it's where we get words like dynamic or dynamite, talking about power, right? That is connected to grace. Now, grace is also, of course, used to describe salvation, that we are saved by grace. But when we talk about spiritual gifts, for example, the word for gifts is charismata. The Greek word for grace is charis where we get the word charismatic from. It's all tied together that when the Lord empowers us, it's an act of his grace. Paul will refer to his ministry as the grace that has been given to me. These gifts that the Holy Spirit gives us. And we've talked about this at length. We understand this. That when the Holy Spirit comes upon us, not only does he graciously provide salvation, he graciously empowers you to do the work that God has called you to do. And Stephen is making full use of the power that God has given to him. Stephen was a guy that wanted to find out where the edges were. The Lord said, I will give you power for ministry. He says, awesome, let's go. Let's see what the extent of that is. Let's see if the Lord is going to empower us to do that. Let's see if the Lord will empower me to do this. And God was with him. That's why I liked Stephen so much. He heard from the apostles what God had said he would do. And he said, all right, well, let's go do that. We don't know if he was one of the 70 that Jesus sent out. We don't know if he was one of the 120 in the upper room. We just see him for the first time being, oh man, he'd be a great guy to be in charge of the widow's ministry. And now he's doing miracles and disputing with the professors. We don't know, it doesn't say exactly what he was doing, but I would imagine there would be things similar to what we saw in Acts chapter 3, that he was healing people. It says he was performing wonders. I like that, because it's sort of a catch-all term for miracles. Like, they're just wondrous things that made people wonder, like, what is happening right now? The Lord was empowering him to do that. As he was preaching, he's going to get in a lot of trouble in the next chapter for his preaching. And what they do, you see that men of the synagogue of the freedmen, Cyrenians, Alexandrians, what's important about this, these guys are not from Jerusalem. doesn't really explain why that is significant, but I kind of get the feeling that 
they were called in. We've got to call the experts. We can't dispute with this guy, Stephen, because he comes out and preaches the gospel, and then he lays hands on people and they're healed, and all of these people are becoming Christians. We've got to stop them. Well, we can't argue with him. We can't debate with him. He's too skilled. So call in the experts. Call in the people from Alexandria, which was a center of great learning. It was where universities were and libraries were in Egypt and from all these other places, too. Call in everybody, and even they cannot dispute with Stephen. And Stephen, as I said, he was a nobody. He wasn't some educated man. He wasn't an apostle. He wasn't any of those things. He was just a guy that God used. Can you imagine if we were being used of the Lord in that way, and all of a sudden people start calling in experts that say, hey, I'd really love to have a televised debate with you so I can embarrass you in front of everybody. Hey, I've got some questions for you, and there are these loaded questions that no one is able to answer. This still happens sometimes in America and in other parts of the world. But what's so amazing, Stephen was not an apostle. He was a waiter. He was taking care of food. He was delivering food to people. He was like DoorDash for the church. A regular Christian. He was a regular Christian who took God at his word and was used in a mighty way. This is important because as we see in the book of Acts, the miraculous power of the Spirit was not limited to the apostles. You will hear this a lot. Well, the apostles did miracles, but no one else did. Stephen is not an apostle. So there you go. That should be open and shut. But there's a lot of excuses that people will run through. Well, Stephen was appointed by an apostle, so that, that counts. Well, which is it? Because all I see is a man used of the Lord, fulfilling what Jesus had said would happen in Mark chapter 16 and other places. In 1 Corinthians 12, 7, it says, To each, to every Christian is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. This is not an example of something unique and unrepeatable. This is of what God has in store for each of us if we will believe him and step out in faith. Now, is this saying that every one of us is going to do a miracle? I would never be so foolish as to say that. But when you step out and you are on the cutting edge of evangelism and you're sharing the gospel every day and you're praying for people every day, you're going to start to see the Lord move. Someone told me one time, if you want to see people healed when you pray for them, pray for more people. If you pray for 500 people to be healed, you're much more likely just by the, by the numbers. If you want to see people saved, share the gospel with 1,000 people. Because you're spreading out, well, I've shared the gospel with three people and no one ever gets saved. Well, bump those numbers up. Get out there and spread it out because the Lord wants to use you. And as you step out and as you pray and as you evangelize, you become more effective and more skilled. And now you're having to be in prayer because you're having these encounters every day. And you're stepping out in faith and you're trusting the Lord. That's when you're going to start to see God empower you. You can't wait for these things to happen first. You've got to step out in faith. Peter didn't walk on water until he stepped out of the boat, right? The Lord has promised us that he would support our evangelism, support our ministry with gifts of his Holy Spirit, and that he would give us the right words to say. Remember what Jesus said? Don't plan what you're going to say when you stand before these people. When you, when you go before kings, when you stand before governors, when you stand before the synagogue, don't plan what you're going to say. Just get out there and trust that I'm going to take care of you. And this is what's happening to Stephen. He's out there disputing with these educated Men walking in with a bunch of letters after their name. And all he's got is the power of the Holy Spirit and a bunch of faith. And they cannot withstand him. So are you going to believe that the Lord will empower you and support what you're doing if you step out in faith? Well, what if he doesn't? He will. I promise he will. I'll tell you all, I am not a natural evangelist. By that I mean I am not gifted like some people are just to step up and start talking about Jesus to people. 
I do it because I know I'm supposed to. And you know, every single time I have stepped out and done it, it's like that, that's a new story that I can tell whenever I talk to people. God always steps up and answers. I remember, I'll tell this story before we move on, because this isn't really what I wanted to talk about today, but it's just so important. You know, we were with our youth group in Virginia, and we were going to go to the mall, and we were going to share the gospel, and it was me and a team of two or three kids, and uh, I said, well, I'll, I'll talk to somebody first, and then you guys. And then, of course, you've, you've all done this. You, you walk around for like 45 minutes looking for the right person, right? Oh, no, they're busy. And, you know, and I, I remember telling them, I said, guys, I'm going to tell you, I am scared to death right now. I don't know who to talk to. And they said, well, what about him over there? And there was this old man sitting on a bench. And I thought, okay, that's as easy as it gets. That's as low risk. I live in Lynchburg, Virginia. It's Christianville. This, he's probably going to say, oh, I love seeing young people share the gospel, you know? Well, I walk up to this guy. And I say, hey, my name is Tyler, and I start sharing the gospel with him. Turns out this man had been training when he was young to become a Catholic priest. During his training, he had abandoned God, walked away from the Lord. Now he has a life-threatening disease that is going to be taking him pretty much any time. So I said, you know, I think God sent me to talk to you. The Lord wants you back. The Lord wants to have your soul. And he says, well, you can't prove that, and you don't know that. And he said, well, he's giving all these excuses. I said, if you believe in the Lord, he will save you. Said, well, how do you know that? And I read, you know, Romans, it tells us that if you confess with your mouth and you believe in your heart, never forget how we ended the conversation. He goes, well, I think our time together is just about up. I said, okay, but you need to know that God spoke to you and God is trying to get your attention. Okay. Never heard from him again. But what a story. I'm sitting there panicking like, oh, what if somebody's mean to me? And sometimes people will be mean to you. But the Lord sets things up. Don't you know that? Hey, she's going to go share the gospel today. I'm going to move this person over here because I'm ready to save her and she's ready to share. So let's put them together. Hey, he's excited about praying for people to be healed. I want to heal him. I'm going to bring him into his path. I can use him. We've got to step out and trust that God is there. And don't say things like, I don't know enough. I'm not skilled enough. I'm not trained enough. Stephen was nobody, but he had the Lord and it was enough. God is ready to make up for our shortcomings when we step out in faith. And then when you are faithful every day, then every day is going to become extraordinary. So let's look and see what happened now. He's out there preaching the gospel. People are getting healed. He's performing miracles. So they call in the experts. Maybe they wanted to prove that there are no such thing as miracles. And then the Lord keeps doing miracles. Like, okay, well, now what do we do? So instead of saying, you know what? Maybe we're wrong. Verse 11. Then they secretly instigated men who said, we have heard him speak blasphemous words against Moses and God. Very, very bad to conflate those two things. And they stirred up the people and the elders and the scribes, and they came upon him and seized him and brought him before the council. And they set up false witnesses who said, this man never ceases to speak words against this holy place and the law. Talking about the law. The law said, thou shalt not bear false witness. And it's exactly what they're doing. Bunch of hypocrites. For we have heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and will change the customs that Moses delivered to us. And gazing at him, all who sat in the council saw that his face was like the face of an angel. Verse 1, And the high priest said, Are these things so? What a shameful thing. Just like Joseph, just like Daniel, just like Jesus, the opponents of God's men have to resort to lies and tricks to stop them. The devil wants to bring Joseph down. He's got to have him falsely accused of harassing his master's wife. 
In Daniel chapter 6, verse 5, Daniel's rising up in the ranks. He's climbing the ladder. And these men wanted to get him in trouble. They spied on him for a long time. And they said in Daniel 6, 5, We shall not find any ground for complaint against Daniel unless we find it in connection with the law of his God. That's another thing I wish could be said about me. You can't get him in trouble unless you make prayer illegal. And then, then you really got him. And that's what they did. Same thing with Jesus. He hadn't done anything wrong, but they stirred up false witnesses. And this is when the enemy is not playing games anymore. We've been talking about that as we've gone through, that there have been several encounters between the apostles and the Sanhedrin, the council, especially the Sadducees. And they're trying to get them to come around. And the enemy will convince, and he will try to cajole at first, but he fights dirty. The enemy cannot stop the gospel, so he'll try to silence the gospel. We should be prepared for that. And we should not think, as Peter says in, in his epistles, that something strange is happening. That, that as more and more people get saved, it feels like the pressure gets worse and worse and worse. And that's what the enemy does. And they bring in these false witnesses. And you can get a glimpse of what he was preaching and what the dispute was about between him and these other men by the accusation that they're bringing against him. They say that he's blasphemed God and Moses. You can see already the problem. Blasphemy is directed against the Lord alone, not against people. And they're saying Jesus is going to come and tear down the temple. Is that what they were preaching? Of course not. But they figure it worked on Jesus. Maybe it'll work for him too. Do you remember? This is the, this is the accusation that, so to speak, sealed Jesus' execution. They kept on trying to find something to pin him with. And even though they wanted him executed, they could barely do it until finally they got two people who said, well, he said that he would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days. Ah, you made threats against the temple. You're a terrorist. So what do you have to say for yourself, Jesus? And you guys all know, Jesus hadn't said he was going to destroy the temple. He was talking about his own death and his resurrection. But they wanted him dead, so they were going to come up with whatever they could. Same thing with Stephen. He wasn't proclaiming that someday we're going to tear down this temple. And he said, change of customs. He said, he's going to change the law. What, the law you're not following by bringing in false witnesses? Yes, that law. But what I think you can see here, Stephen was preaching pure, unadulterated, new covenant gospel. Turn with me to Jeremiah chapter 31. We're going to read these verses. These are very, very key Old Testament verses. Jeremiah 31, verse 31. And I'm going to read down to verse 34. This is when Jeremiah was prophesying. This is when Israel was under attack from Babylon. They were being sent into exile. The temple was destroyed, actually was destroyed, unlike Stephen, who was not even really proclaiming that. But let's see what the Lord prophesied in the midst of all that. Jeremiah 31, from verse 31 down to verse 34. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make, underline it, a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. Not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. My covenant that they broke though I was their husband, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them, and I will write it on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me. From the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord, for I will forgive their iniquity, and I will remember their sin no more. 
Ezekiel prophesied this as well, that there would be a new covenant. And the change would go from the outward forms of the temple and the rituals and the sacrifices to a law that's written on the heart. And God would speak to his people directly. He would forgive their sins. That's the gospel. And Jeremiah was written, of course, hundreds of years before Jesus came. And Stephen is saying, hey, those days are now. The new covenant has come. Jesus Christ was the perfect sacrifice to inaugurate a new covenant. The law is now written on our hearts. We are the temple of the Holy Spirit. And you're preaching stuff like that, and the Sadducees are not going to be very happy with you. Because what's he doing? It's like he's trying to take us away from our area of authority. If people are going to stop coming to the temple, if they're going to think that they don't need us anymore, if they think they can come to God directly without us, how are we going to keep making money, among other things? How are we going to keep the people in line and keep Rome from finally cracking down on us? They're not going to stand for that. And so what do they say? Well, we're going to take the worst possible, misconstrued version of what he's teaching, and we're going to put him on trial for that. Of course, he did not promise to destroy the temple, and he was not teaching the people to abandon their Jewish heritage. They were meeting in the temple every day, three times a day for prayer. They were still offering sacrifices. They were still bringing their votive offerings to the Lord. We're going to see this when we come to the end of the book, that even Paul would do that. They were still proclaiming the gospel to the Jews in Jerusalem. And they were saying that Jesus, our Messiah, has come. This is a totally Jewish message at this point. We haven't even spoken to any Gentiles yet. But they come in and say, you are trying to change things. They just wanted to make an example of him. He had embarrassed them one too many times. We can't touch those apostles. If we touch those guys, then those people are going to riot in the temple. Stephen's no apostle. Well, what is his role within that church? Uh, I think he oversees the widow's distribution. Well, I'm not afraid to handle that guy. And so they pretend to believe these trumped-up charges. See that in chapter 7, verse 1. Are these things so? What do you have to say for yourself, sir? And Stephen is going to give them an answer. <laughs> but you see at the end of chapter 6, it says that his face was like the face of an angel. I don't know exactly what that means. I don't know if it means he was glowing. I don't know if it means that he just looked like the years had lifted off of him. It doesn't matter. They just looked at him and he looked like an angel. Kind of a testimony, number one, that God was with him. And second of all, who's the innocent one in this room? You've got him on, on trial, and he's the innocent one. You're the ones that are committing crimes, and actually Stephen is going to flip it around at the end, and he's going to be accusing them rather than answering their accusations. This was his moment, and this is a bittersweet moment for the church because Stephen is going to maintain his testimony, but he's going to maintain it unto death. So it's glorious, but it's also heartbreaking. And it's heartbreaking because the, the rulers of Israel are going to hear the gospel laid out in front of them and they're going to reject it. So let's look now. Chapter 7, starting at verse 2. I'm actually going to read all the way through and get to verse 53 because this is such a long passage. I want to draw out several things from it. But one thing I do want to say before we get into this, Stephen is not going to directly answer the accusations. Just like Jesus did not directly answer the accusations. Just like the apostles did not directly answer. They brought Jesus in and they said, so you're going to tear down the temple? Jesus could have said, look guys, I wasn't talking about the temple literally. I was talking about my body. It's a metaphor, okay? That would have smoothed things over real quick. 
If they had brought the apostles in and they said, you're trying to bring this man's blood down on us. They would have said, no, guys, we're not trying any kind of political power play here. We're talking about salvation. This is about forgiveness. You guys have your sphere. We have ours. They could have smoothed it over. Stephen could have come in and tried to smooth everything over. Say, guys, look, I'm not preaching this. I'm, pre I'm preaching this. It's all right. He, they, they could have tried to hold up their own innocence, but this is not what they did. I think this is important because I think that would be all of our first response. If we were dragged before a court for committing some crime, allegedly in preaching the gospel, our first thing was, they don't have any case against me. I'm going to bring in a lawyer and they're going to tear them apart. But the Lord said, I don't want you doing that. Don't answer their false accusations. They'll say elsewhere in the, in the New Testament, don't defend yourself. Let the Lord fight for you. People bring in false accusations, let the Lord defend you. Instead, he's going to use this as an opportunity to proclaim the gospel because he will not even pretend that he's compromising with these people. He's not even going to water it down a little bit. He's going to preach exactly what God has taught him to preach, and it's an outstanding example for us. Starting in verse 2, And Stephen said, Brothers and fathers, hear me. The God of glory appeared to our father Abraham when he was in Mesopotamia, before he lived in Haran, and said to him, Go out from your land and from your kindred and go into the land that I will show you. Then he went out from the land of the Chaldeans and lived in Haran. And after his father died, God removed him from there into this land in which you are now living. Yet he gave him no inheritance in it, not even a foot's length, but promised to give it to him as a possession and to his offspring after him, though he had no child. And God spoke to this effect, that his offspring would be sojourners in a land belonging to others, who would enslave them and afflict them 400 years. But I will judge the nation that they serve, said God. And after that, they shall come out and worship me in this place. And he gave him the covenant of circumcision. And so Abraham became the father of Isaac and circumcised him on the eighth day. And Isaac became the father of Jacob and Jacob of the 12 patriarchs. And the patriarchs, jealous of Joseph, sold him into Egypt. But God was with him and rescued him out of all his afflictions and gave him favor and wisdom before Pharaoh, king of Egypt, who made him ruler over Egypt and over all his household. Now there came a famine throughout all Egypt and Canaan and great affliction, and our fathers could find no food. But when Jacob heard that there was grain in Egypt, he sent out our fathers on their first visit. And on the second visit, Joseph made himself known to his brothers, and Joseph's family became known to Pharaoh. And Joseph sent and summoned Jacob, his father, and all his kindred, 75 persons in all. And Jacob went down into Egypt, and he died, he and our fathers. And they were carried back to Shechem and laid in the tomb that Abraham had bought for a sum of silver from the sons of Hamor in Shechem. But as the time of the promise drew near, which God had granted to Abraham, the people increased and multiplied in Egypt until there arose over Egypt another king who did not know Joseph." He dealt shrewdly with our race and forced our fathers to expose their infants so that they would not be kept alive. At this time, Moses was born, and he was beautiful in God's sight. And he was brought up for three months in his father's house. And when he was exposed, Pharaoh's daughter adopted him and brought him up as her own son. And Moses was instructed in all the wisdom of the Egyptians, and he was mighty in his words and deeds. When he was 40 years old, it came into his heart to visit his brothers, the children of Israel. And seeing one of them being wronged, he defended the oppressed man and avenged him by striking down the Egyptian. He supposed that his brothers would understand that God was giving them salvation by his hand, but they did not understand. And on the following day, he appeared to them as they were quarreling and tried to reconcile them, saying, 
Men, you are brothers. Why do you wrong each other? But the man who was wronging his neighbor thrust him aside, saying, Who made you a ruler and a judge over us? Do you want to kill me as you killed the Egyptian yesterday? At this retort, Moses fled and became an exile in the land of Midian, where he became the father of two sons. Now when forty years had passed, an angel appeared to him in the wilderness of Mount Sinai in a flame of fire and a bush. When Moses saw it, he was amazed at the sight. And as he drew near to look, there came the voice of the Lord. I am the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham and of Isaac and of Jacob. And Moses trembled and did not dare to look. Then the Lord said to him, Take off the sandals from your feet, for the place where you are standing is holy ground. I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt and have heard their groaning, and I have come down to deliver them. And now come, I will send you to Egypt. This Moses, whom they rejected, saying, Who made you a ruler and a judge? This man God sent as both ruler and redeemer by the hand of the angel who appeared to him in the bush. This man led them out, performing wonders and signs in Egypt and at the Red Sea and in the wilderness for 40 years. This is the Moses who said to the Israelites, God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brothers. This is the one who was in the congregation in the wilderness with the angel who spoke to him at Mount Sinai and with our fathers. He received living oracles to give to us. Our fathers refused to obey him, but thrust him aside. And in their hearts, they turned to Egypt, saying to Aaron, make us gods who will go before us. As for this Moses who led us out from the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. And they made a calf in those days and offered a sacrifice to the idol and were rejoicing in the works of their hands. But God turned away and gave them over to worship the host of heaven, as it is written in the book of the prophets. Did you bring me slain beasts and sacrifices during the 40 years in the wilderness, O house of Israel? You took up the tent of Moloch and the star of your god, Raphan, the images that you made to worship, and I will send you into exile beyond Babylon. Our fathers had the tent of witness in the wilderness, just as he who spoke to Moses directed him to make it, according to the pattern that he had seen. Our fathers in turn brought it in with Joshua when they dispossessed the nations that God drove out before our fathers. So it was until the days of David, who found favor in the sight of God and asked to find a dwelling place for the God of Jacob. But it was Solomon who built a house for him. Yet the Most High does not dwell in houses made by hands. As the prophet says, heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool. What kind of house will you build for me, says the Lord? Or what is the place of my rest? Did not my hand make all these things? You stiff-necked people, uncircumcised in heart and ears, you always resist the Holy Spirit. As your fathers did, so did you. Which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? And they killed those who announced beforehand the coming of the righteous one, whom you have now betrayed and murdered, you who received the law as delivered by angels and did not keep it. Quite a speech. Stephen recites Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, Joshua. Kind of skips over Judges, but gets into first and 2 Samuel into Kings and Chronicles a little bit. He's reciting all of Israel's history in an abbreviated form. And it's kind of strange when you see what's going on here. He's on trial for saying he's going to destroy the temple and change the, the customs of Israel. What do you have to say for yourself? And he starts a history lesson. It starts with Genesis, with Abraham, and it builds up to the building of the temple. There's a point there. But I, there's several things I want to draw out from this. And Stephen is, is answering the accusations, but first of all, by showing that they're not true. 
But before we do that, there are a couple things that I want to draw out from this. Because Stephen adds a little bit of color to the story of Abraham and to the story of Moses that we do not get in the Old Testament. It's there, but it's not drawn out as explicitly. So I just want to make sure that you saw these things. We could, of course, teach a passage like this for weeks and weeks. But let's look at this first. He said that in verse 2, the God of glory appeared to Abraham when he was in Mesopotamia before he lived in Haran and told him to go out. Then he went and lived in Haran, and after his father died, God removed him from there. So this is important because in the Old Testament, we see Moses living in Haran, and then he goes to the promised land and that God spoke to him. Stephen draws out something very important here, and I may have talked about this before, that God spoke to Moses when he was living in the city of Ur with his father and said, leave. But Abraham was disobedient and went with his father and with his family, and they went to Haran and stopped there, which is not where God told him to go. And it wasn't until his father Terah died that Abraham finally made it into the promised land. That's important because there was a hiccup in the step there. Have you ever wondered, why did God pick Abraham to have all these descendants, but waited until he was in his 90s? You ever wonder that? That was not God's original plan. God called him when he was a young man. And then he says, Dad, I'm going to a new promised land that the God of heaven has showed me. Okay, great. I'm coming with you. And off they travel. They get to the city of Haran and dad says, I like it here. I'm going to stay here. And Abraham says, well, I'm supposed to keep going. He says, you should respect your father. And he stayed there and he grew old until finally he gets into the promised land. And it's actually not until Abraham gets there that God finally speaks to him again. It just adds a little bit of color to the story, right? That God doesn't compromise. God wants us to do it his way. Well, Lord, I went most of the way. That's great. Keep going. A little bit of color to that story. There's a couple things with Moses here. If you look in, in the middle of chapter seven, first of all, we, we get it said explicitly in this passage that Moses was raised by Pharaoh's daughter and that he was instructed in the ways of Egypt. It doesn't give us those details. You, you assume it when you're in the book of Exodus, but he explains that Moses learned everything and that he was a man mighty in word and deed. So that, that's where you get that. It also shows us that he knew his heritage. Now, every film adaptation of the story of Moses ever has some big surprise moment where Moses finds out that he was a Jew. That does not seem to be the case in the Bible. In fact, I'll bet you that the people around him never let him forget the fact that he was a Jew and that he didn't belong in the court with the rest of them. They probably saw him as something like a novelty, like, oh, isn't that nice that they're, they're allowing a Hebrew to be in here? And that it was probably thought of a strange thing that, why is Pharaoh's daughter raising a slave in this house and she's teaching him everything and he's some prince? But he was mighty in word and deed. So it's not that he was obscure, but that he probably very well knew who he was. And it says that one day his heart went with him to go out and be with his brothers. And he killed that Egyptian. And you know the story. And it's important to see this here. On the following day, he appeared to them as they were quarreling and trying to reconcile them. Because before he had said, he supposed that they would understand that God was giving them salvation by his hand. So he knew he was the deliverer. He knew that God had raised him up. But just like Abraham, he tries to do it his way. He tries to do it the way a king of Egypt would do it, which is, we're going to start an uprising. I'm going to see a slave being abused. I'm going to kill that man. And they're going to think, Moses cares for us. Moses can, can lead us out of here. And he shows up the next day expecting them to be all cheering and chanting his name. I'm like, back off, buddy. We're not listening to you. Who made you king over us? This also explains 
why Moses would have fled into the wilderness. Because if, if he's a prince of Egypt, as they say, and he killed one man, this was not like our justice system where everybody is subject to the law. Back then, you could get away with stuff like that. Why was Pharaoh trying to kill him? Because Moses wasn't just killing one man. Moses was trying to start a rebellion. He was trying to get all of the slaves to rise up with him. God told him, you're going to be the deliverer of your people. He says, great, like Spartacus, we're going to start a slave revolt, and that's what you're going to do. And God said, not that way. And he had to go and learn in the Lord's school for 40 years. It's important to see these things because they're there. A lot of times you'll hear these details explained and then you open up the book of Genesis or Exodus and you're like, I don't see that. Where is that exactly? Well, the New Testament sheds light on these older stories. Hebrews, the book of Hebrews does that a lot as well. So it's important to know your whole Bible. So leaving that now, why does Stephen tell this big long story? Story that they would have known. You can see all these guys probably like rolling their eyes like, yes, we know. Whippersnapper, I taught you that when you were this big. You're going to try and tell me? Well, there's two things that Stephen is trying to draw out here. First of all, he's trying to draw out a lesson that is going to vindicate him of the crime. And second of all, he's trying to draw out a lesson to confront the council. Stephen was a brave man. So the first thing he's trying to show is something that will vindicate him. So they're accusing him of wanting to destroy the temple and eliminate the, the rituals that Moses gave. And Stephen tells the story, building up to the point when the temple was built. Why does he stop there? Because Stephen is trying to show them that God is perfectly capable of ministering to his people without the temple. That's why it ends there. It kind of feels like it ends abruptly, doesn't it? The reason he does that is he's showing God was speaking to his people for hundreds of years with no temple. So they talk about the temple. You can maybe imagine them saying, this is the place where God is, and this is the place where they came back from exile, and this is where Ezra preached, and this is where the Lord has glorified this nation, and this is where we cast off the reign of the Greeks, and you're going to speak down to this place. This is God's house. And Stephen says, yeah, but God spoke to Abraham when he was in Mesopotamia, didn't he? All of a sudden, God is communicating and speaking outside of the temple, and he's going to run through that all the way through Israel's history. This is a very clever thing that he does. God spoke to Abraham outside of the promised land. And then Abraham got there. But as soon as he got there, God told Abraham, your kids are going to be in Egypt. He's trying to undercut the proof that God needs a temple or that the temple is essential to the worship of God. Joseph gets sent to Egypt, but God is with him in Egypt. I thought you needed a temple to have God's presence. Moses goes to Midian and meets God in Midian in a burning bush. And then God did wonders in Egypt and at the Red Sea and in the wilderness. They meet God at Mount Sinai. And then they built, not a temple, a tabernacle. The ESV translates it tent, because that's what tabernacle means. It was a tent that they built. And they carried it throughout the wilderness. And then they go into the promised land, and he dwelt in that tabernacle. They used it for hundreds of years until finally Solomon built the temple. Do you see what he's trying to show them? He's trying to say, you're, you're all hot and bothered about me downplaying the temple, but God doesn't need a temple. God never needed one to speak to his people. In fact, in 2 Samuel chapter 7, when David asked the Lord if he could build a temple, God said to David, thus says the Lord, would you build me a house to dwell in? I have not lived in a house since the day I brought up the people of Israel from Egypt to this day, but I've been moving about in a tent for my dwelling. In all places I've moved with all the people of Israel. Did I ever speak a word to any of the judges of Israel? 
whom I commanded to shepherd them, saying, Why have you not built me a house of cedar? God's saying, David, I love that, but I've never asked for a house. I don't need a house. I'm fine in the tent, and I've never once commanded anybody to build me a temple. He says, if you want to do that, that's fine, but I'm going to have your son do it. And in 1 Kings 8.27, when they had built the temple, it was there they were dedicating it. Solomon says, will God indeed dwell on the earth? Behold, heaven and the highest heaven cannot contain you. How much less this house that I have built. So they're focused on this temple, but even when they built the temple, they were acknowledging this can't contain God. We can't put limits on God. Remember Jonah tried to run from the Lord? He tried to run from the temple where God lived. And God's like, yeah, I'm the God of earth and sea, Jonah. I can find you wherever you go. And he quotes from Isaiah 66. That's where that, that uh, passage comes from. Heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool. Isaiah chapter 66, verses 1 and 2. He's saying this is just a building. This is not divine. This is a building. It's made of stone, it's made of wood, it's made of gold, it's made of silver. So what exactly is my crime by saying that God is going to move his ministry outside the boundaries of the temple? If, he's saying if the temple were to be destroyed, could we not meet with God anymore? Did God not meet with Daniel when he was in Babylon? This is what he's trying to tell them. God had spoken to and ministered to his people for centuries before the temple. And he says, now the Lord is doing a new thing and bringing the spirit to the people directly. That's what made God's temple special in the first place, was that that's where God's Holy Spirit dwelt. But now that Holy Spirit has been poured out on the church, that the dwelling place of God is with men. We are his temple. 1 Corinthians 6, 19, your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit. 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 4 and 5, Peter said this, as you come to him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God chosen and precious, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. The temple was just a building. It was the presence of God that made it special. And now the Lord is saying, I have put my spirit and my presence within you. Isn't that great? And Stephen is heralding the arrival of God's promises, but these people were so tied to their traditions, they were so tied to their status to even consider it. Because they were the rulers of the temple. They made money off that temple. The temple gave them authority. So if God does not keep himself confined to this temple, then that makes us less important. You're right, it does. But they couldn't handle that. And that brings us to the larger point of Stephen's speech. First of all, he's trying to show God does not dwell in temples made with hands. Okay? But the second thing is he is addressing the attitude of defiance that Israel has and the persecution that their rulers have always engaged in. So he's going from defense of himself to confrontation. Stephen, watch out. These are the same people that crucified Jesus. Yeah, he knows. And look how he does this. He describes how the brothers of Joseph rejected him. How Moses was rejected as a deliverer. How they finally rejected God when they built the golden calf. He quotes from Amos chapter 5, th that passage where it says, Did you bring to me slain beasts and sacrifices? That's Amos chapter 5, verses 25 through 27. How it was their idolatry that led them to exile. And by the way, in the book of Amos, Amos was kicked out as well. They rejected him and said, go preach someplace else. We don't want you here. He repeatedly draws out the fact that Israel got it wrong. 
They said every single time God raised somebody up, you rejected him, but God used him anyway. And Moses said that the Messiah would be a prophet like him. That's a quote from Deuteronomy 18.15. Moses said, God will raise up a prophet like me. And the way Stephen is applying that here, this is a rejected prophet. God will raise up a man like me, and just like me, you're not going to like him very much. Isaiah 53, verses 2 through 3, talking about Jesus. He grew up like a young plant, like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him, no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. Jesus was rejected just like Moses was, just like Joseph was just like the Lord was when they turned aside to follow their idols. He's trying to show these men where they fit in the history of Israel. Because no doubt, they thought they were on the side of the Lord. They thought, we would never have rejected those prophets. We're on the right side of history. And Stephen's showing up and says, no, you're just like those people that rejected all those other prophets that God raised up. And in verse 51, he turns around and he brings the accusation to them. Y'all, it is so important that we know the voice of the Lord because we can get stuck like these people were stuck if we're not careful. We have to know what God is doing right now. We've got to be in contact with him so that we know what his plan is. So that we don't become like these dried up wineskins that couldn't handle anything new that God was going to do. They loved everything that God had done before, but they couldn't stand what he was doing right now. That is so common. We cling to the monuments of the past because we have perspective on the past. And we can look and say, well, that was obviously what God was doing. Well, that was obviously not from the Lord. And so, since we have all the right opinions about what happened in the past, we assume that we're going to be in the right going into the future. But we could be totally deaf to what God is doing today. Jesus said this to these same groups of people, Matthew 23, 29 through 30. He said, Woe to you, you scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For you build the tombs of the prophets and decorate the monuments of the righteous, saying, If we had lived in the days of our fathers, we would not have taken part with them in shedding the blood of the prophets. I would never have told Amos to get out of Bethel. I would never have thrown Jeremiah into the pit. I would never have had Isaiah sawn in half. I would never. I would have stood with him. And Jesus is saying, No, you wouldn't. You know how I know? Because you hated John the Baptist and you hate me. You are not in tune with what God is doing. And this is the danger. Anytime our religion has become solely eulogizing what God used to do, it's all about celebrating what God did before, and there's nothing active and alive happening right now, there's a problem. And when we start creating even theology that explains why God doesn't do this stuff anymore, you've created a powerless religion for yourself. We even talked about it a minute ago where I'm talking about how it wasn't just the apostles, it was the Christians that God was using by the power of his Holy Spirit. And we can construct entire belief systems that say, God does not do that stuff anymore. We live normal human lives just like everybody else, but we're in the right. But if you completely excluded anything that God can do today, how do you know that you're in the right? If you have no active relationship with God going on right now, then there ought to be a point where it says in Obadiah that the priests, we are the priests of the Holy Spirit, right? Ought to weep before the Lord. He says, y'all are so far off. He said, shut the doors of the temple, put out the fires of the sacrifices, get on your knees and pray until you hear from me again. 
We've got to come back and hear the voice of the Lord and hear the Holy Spirit moving so that we don't get stuck, so that we don't, we don't become the ones scorning what God is doing through somebody else, so that we don't miss the wave of what God did. We've got to be ready to step out with the Lord. In order to do that, you've got to be prepared to endure the scorn and the manipulation of the world and even the insults of the church. There is joy in the Lord. There is power in the Lord. But we serve a suffering Savior. And his people are going to suffer just like he suffered. And the thing is, when you look back at all the great revivals and all the great things that God has done, they were not easy days. They were hard. They were difficult. People who were following Luther and Calvin and Zwingli during the Reformation, they were getting burned at the stake. They were getting systematically tortured, not by the world, by the church, for daring to read the Bible in their own language, for daring to think that they can pray to the Lord in their own language, for daring to believe that salvation is by grace through faith, just as Paul said. Oh, if only I could live in the days of Wesley and Whitfield when the Methodist revival was taking place and the Great Awakening, how wonderful. Those people were beaten. They had scars. They had blood dripping down their faces while they were preaching. They were dragging them through the streets. Not just the preachers, but the people that went to these crowds would get hauled off by angry mobs and beaten to death in some cases. It was no picnic. Even in the most recent one, in the Jesus movement in the, in the 60s and 70s, which gave rise to Calvary Chapel, the church hated what was going on. They did not receive it. They didn't want it. They thought it was wrong. They thought that they had compromised. Meanwhile, we see thousands upon thousands getting saved and baptized, but all people can look at is, yeah, but they dress funny. And it's kind of funny, but it's tragic, isn't it? Are you prepared to be on the side that's going to get beaten? Are you prepared to be on the side that's going to get burned? Are you prepared to have no respect in respectable society? That's what it means to follow Jesus. And Stephen's heart is so full here. You almost get the vibe that Stephen is, is preaching this message. And as he recites each time that God's man has been rejected, when Moses and Joseph were rejected and they followed these idols rather than the Lord. And he thinks about these people and he sees them all and they're not responding to him. They're scoffing at him and they're rolling their eyes and they're laughing and whispering to each other. And he looks at these men and he knows these are the men that crucified the Lord Jesus Christ. And they're supposed to be the leaders and the rulers of this people. They have no idea what they're doing. They're resisting the Holy Spirit. God is speaking to them right now and they're going to put me to death. These are the same people that beat the apostles for performing miracles and healing people. And I, I don't even know, I almost get the vibe that he wasn't finished with his speech, but all of a sudden he just erupts and says, you stiff-necked people! All respect, all your honor, it's gone now. Now he is just a prophet speaking to these people. You're resisting the Holy Spirit, just like your fathers did. And you killed the righteous one. You put Jesus to death. How dare you stand there? How dare you resist what God is doing? Well, that's not very winsome, Stephen. They weren't going to listen to him. This was a rebuke. This was the, the words of Isaiah and Jeremiah and John the Baptist coming out of his mouth here. And now he's going to face their wrath. Verse 54, when they heard these things, they were enraged and they ground their teeth at him. They were so mad. They wanted him dead. But he, full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And he said, behold, what does behold mean? It means, look, guys, look, look right there. I can see it. I see the heavens opened and the son of man standing at the right hand of God. 
But they cried out with a loud voice and stopped their ears and rushed together at him. Then they cast him out of the city and stoned him. Stoned him. We hear that word. We think, okay, they killed him. They picked up rocks and smashed his head in. These men, they didn't call the executioner, the rabbis, the teachers, the professors, the scribes, the Pharisees. They beat him to death with rocks, dragged him outside of the city. And the witnesses laid down their garments at the feet of a young man named Saul. Circle that. We're going to meet him again next week. And as they were stoning Stephen, he called out, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Somebody else had said that, hadn't he? And falling to his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. Somebody else had said that, hadn't he? And when he had said this, he fell asleep. Christians don't die. We fall asleep. Why do we call it falling asleep? Because we're going to wake up someday. The rulers of Israel chose to silence the voice of God rather than to listen. And they repeat what they did to Jesus. But the thing is, they weren't allowed to execute people. Remember they took Jesus before Pontius Pilate because they needed the authority to execute him? Well, then how could they get away with this to Stephen? Because this was no execution. This was a lynching. This was them being so angry and so mad. They didn't care what Rome said. They wanted this guy dead and they grabbed him and they dragged him outside the city. Everybody would have seen this. Can you imagine how unseemly this would have been for the elders of the people dragging some young guy out and throwing him outside the city and they start taking off their jackets and tossing him to Saul, rolling up their sleeves, picking up rocks and pelting him until the blood starts to flow and they get so angry they start smashing him to death until they're all splattered with the blood of the first Christian martyr. And he's standing there, not crying out for his rights, not demanding a fair trial. Lord, receive my spirit and don't hold this against them, Lord. He sees the standing approval of his Lord. Jesus is standing. You know, Jesus is usually seated at the right hand of the Father. So what's going on here? I'll tell you what's going on here. They're watching. They're watching. Here comes Stephen. Lord, help him maintain his witness. And Stephen is preaching. And they're not listening. And finally, he finishes by announcing, you've crucified the righteous one. He maintains his testimony, even though he knows it means his death. And Jesus is so excited. He's standing up, cheering for him. And Stephen looks up and he sees him. And he knows where he's going in about five minutes. And he tries to show them, but they can't even listen. Can you imagine what it was like when Stephen made it into heaven? Oh man, what a brutal way to die. The pain his teeth would have been smashed out. His bones are broken. They're maybe even prolonging it so that he suffers more. Finally, he bleeds out or he dies and his head is smashed in. And then he opens his eyes and the first thing he sees is Jesus throwing his arms around him saying, Yes, you did it. Well done, my good and faithful servant. That's what I'm talking about. That's what I wanted. That's what we needed. Your testimony is going to last forever. And there are going to be so many people encouraged by this. And the angels are cheering and shouting and rejoicing. And the Old Testament saints, Joseph and Moses, all these men that he had just spoken about are throwing their arms around him and celebrating and they're all falling down at the feet of Jesus. And they would have brought what the Bible calls the crown of life. We're going to talk in a little bit and place it on his head. Well done. And then he would have thrown it back at Jesus' feet and it becomes worship. Stephen has finished the race well. Praise the Lord. That's the way to go, man. Holding fast the testimony until you get to go see Jesus. Can you imagine, though, 
the shock that the church would have felt. What happened to Stephen? They killed him. He's, they killed him? The grief, the fear. I thought the Lord was going to be with us. Things were going so well. The priests were getting saved. Miracles were happening. Ministry was expanding. We can't even count the Christians anymore. And now they've put Stephen to death. The anger. Can you imagine the people, how angry they would have been at this Sanhedrin? Honeymoon period is over, and now it is to be open warfare. Jesus said in Matthew 16, 24 through 25, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. Do you think Stephen had a single regret? <laughs> no way. No way. We are called to die with Christ daily. There's a metaphor there, right? Deny yourself. Don't live for yourself. If you get all wrapped up in your own business and your own nonsense, that's a miserable place to be. Jesus says, no, no, no. Put that to death and follow me. But it's also literal. If the time comes, you need to be ready to die for Jesus. You can only push the enemy so far. If you start achieving victories for the Lord Jesus, people will start to get angry and violent with you because the enemy stirs them up. So here's the question now. You might say, oh, I would die for Jesus in a moment, but are you dying for him daily? Are you dying daily for Jesus? We in this country, in this state, in this city are living in a honeymoon period right now. There's nobody coming in and writing everyone's name at the door to know who's a Christian so that we can put them on a list. There's nobody rounding us up. There's no threat that we're going to be jailed or imprisoned. So here's the question. What are we doing? What are we doing in that freedom? Are we provoking the enemy? Are we making gains for the gospel that are so fantastic that the enemy has to say, we've got to put a stop to this? There's a song that I love. Rise up, O men of God. Have done with lesser things. Makes everything else feel so petty when you read stories like this, doesn't it? What was I spending my time on? Why would I do that? This is real. This is everything. This is life. Get into the fight because this is the day. Jesus said in John 9, 4, that the night is coming when no one can work. Right now, nobody will stop you. And in this town, people might even applaud you for sharing the gospel, for going out and finding those that are hurting and bringing the message of salvation to them. Because we don't know how long we have, y'all. We can't wait until the persecution comes. Let's go provoke the enemy. Let's go get in his face. So you're going to have to stop me. I'm not going to fall for this whole lulling me to sleep nonsense. We want to be those kinds of Christians that when the enemy gives us a feather bed, they're like, I'm not falling for that. I'm not falling asleep. It's fine, then you can have a cell. I'd rather have that because it would empower us and it would force us to stay close to Jesus. But we shouldn't need that. We should be with the Lord every day. We should be used to dying to ourselves so that when it comes to physically dying for ourselves, it's just the final completion of what we've always done. We're going to torture you. I am accustomed to denying my flesh. So I'm okay with that. I can deal with it. Because I know at the end of it, Jesus is going to be standing there waiting for me. You know, the name Stephen means crown in Greek. Stephanos. And it wasn't so much a, a crown that a king wore. That was called a diadem. It was a sign of royalty. A Stephanos was like a laurel. It was given to athletes or it was given to generals that had won great victories. You've seen that. You've seen the pictures where they've got the laurel wreath around their head. It was a sign of victory. 
You went to the Olympic Games and you won the race. You got a laurel placed upon your head. You went out into battle and you won and you came back. They would place a laurel upon your head. And this is what Stephen's name means. And you know, he had finished his race well and he had won that fight. Revelation chapter 2 verse 10 says, Do not fear what you are about to suffer. The devil is about to throw some of you into prison that you may be tested, and for ten days you will have tribulation. Be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown, the Stephanos of life. Be faithful unto death, and I'll give you the crown of life. When we stand before Jesus, we're going to be casting all of our crowns, all of our Stephanoi before him. It's not a sign of authority and rulership. It's a sign of victory. You won the victory. And you, don't you want to have some victories that you can lay at the feet of the king? This is what the generals would do. They would get the laurel, then they would come to the emperor, and they would lay that down because it was all for the emperor, right? You're doing it on his behalf in the same way. And you know what is amazing about this story as we bring it back here? Stephen was no hero. He was no apostle. He was a faithful servant. He was in charge of the Meals on Wheels ministry for the church. And God gave him a miraculous ministry and empowered him to have a spectacular end to his life. You have been gifted by the same Holy Spirit. You are the temple of the Holy Spirit. You are living in the days that were foretold. So I finish today by saying, go out into the harvest and work the fields. Because you don't know when the night is going to come. You don't know when some law is going to be passed. You don't know when the enemy is going to be bold enough to make a move. So you've got to be ready. I don't want to be 30 years down the road and, I don't know, we're hiding in the, in the basement somewhere because they're after us. And then we remember, you know, we had decades and decades with none of this, and we wasted those decades. We don't want to say that. We want to look back and say, I'm so glad we took advantage of that time, because if we hadn't, it would be so difficult to do it right now. Let's get into the fight, because the Lord is with you. He'll empower you, and if we persist and endure to the end, he says, that we'll gain the crown of life.